Section 24 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 57 The Irish Church, Part 2. Public expectation was not kept long in suspense. A few days after the debate on Mr. Maguire's motion, Mr. Gladstone gave a notice of a series of resolutions on the subject of the Irish State Church. The resolutions were three in number. The first declared that in the opinion of the House of Commons it was necessary that the established Church of Ireland should cease to exist as an establishment, due regard being had to all personal interests and to all individual rights of property. The second resolution pronounced it expedient to prevent the creation of new personal interests by the exercise of any public patronage and the third asked for an address to the queen praying that her majesty would place at the disposal of parliament her interest in the temporalities of the irish church the subject of these resolutions was simply to prepare for the actual disestablishment of the church by providing that no further appointments should be made and that the act of patronage should be stayed until parliament should decide the fate of the whole institution on march thirtieth eighteen sixty eight mr gladstone proposed his resolutions not many persons could have had much doubt as to the result of the debate but if there were any such their doubts must have begun to vanish when they read the notice of amendment to the resolutions which was given by lord stanley the amendment proclaimed even more surely than the resolutions the impending fall of the irish church lord stanley must have been supposed to speak in the name of the government and the conservative party and his amendment merely declared that the house while admitting that considerable modifications in the temporalities of the church in ireland might appear to be expedient was of opinion that any proposition tending to the disestablishment or disendowment of that church ought to be reserved for the decision of the new parliament mr gladstone seized on the evidence offered by the terms of such an amendment he observed that before the hour at which notice was given of that amendment he had thought that the thread of the remaining life of the irish established church was short but since the notice was given he thought it shorter still for as mr gladstone put it suppose his resolutions had been declarations calling for the abolition of the house of lords was it possible to conceive that the government would have met them by an amendment admitting that the constitution of the upper house might appear to stand in need of considerable modification but offering the opinion that any proposal tending to the abolition of that house ought to be left to the decision of a new parliament if such an amendment were offered by the government the whole country would at once understand that it was not intended to defend the existence of the house of lords so the country now understood with regard to the irish church lord stanley's amendment asked only for delay it did not plead that to-morrow would be sudden it only asked that the stroke of doom should not be allowed to fall on the irish church to-day the debate was one of great power and interest some of the speakers were heard at their very best 
Mr. Bright made a speech which was well worthy of the occasion in the orator. Mr. Gathorne Hardy was in his very element. He flung aside all consideration of amendment, compromise, or delay, and went in for a vehement defence of the Irish Church. He spoke in the spirit of Mr. Rouer's famous Jamais. Mr. Hardy was not a debater of keen logical power, nor an orator of genuine inspiration, but he always could rattle a defiant drum with excellent effect. He beat the war drum this time with tremendous energy. On the other hand, Mr. Lowe threw an intensity of bitterness remarkable even for him into the unsparing logic with which he assailed the Irish church. That church, he said, was like an exotic brought from a far country, tended with infinite pains and useless trouble. It is kept alive with the greatest difficulty and at great expense in an uncongenial climate and an ungrateful soil. The curse of barrenness is upon it. It has no leaves, puts forth no blossom, and yields no fruit. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Not the least remarkable speech of the debate was made by Lord Cranbourne, who denounced the government of which he was not long since a member, with an energy of hatred almost like ferocity. He accused his late colleagues of having in every possible way betrayed the cause of conservatism, and he assailed Mr. Disraeli personally, in a manner which made older members think of the days when Mr. Disraeli was denouncing Sir Robert Peel. No eloquence and no invective, however, could stay the movement begun by Mr. Gladstone. When the division was called, there were 270 votes for the amendment and 331 against it. The doom of the Irish Church was pronounced by a majority of 61. Mr. Disraeli made a wild effort by speech and by letter to get up an alarm in the country on the score of some imaginary alliance or conspiracy between high church ritualists and Irish Romanists. The attempt was a complete failure. There was only a little flash. No explosion came. The country did not show the slightest alarm. An interval was afforded for agitation on both sides. The House of Commons had only decided against Lord Stanley's amendment. Mr. Gladstone's resolutions had yet to be discussed. Lord Russell presided at a great meeting held in St. James's Hall for the purpose of expressing public sympathy with the movement to disestablish the Irish Church. Many meetings were held by those on the other side of the question as well. But it was obvious to everyone that there was no great force in the attempt at a defense of the Irish Church that institution had in truth a position which only became less and less defensible the more it was studied every example and argument drawn from the history of the church of england was but another condemnation of the church of ireland during one of the subsequent debates in the house of lords lord derby introduced with remarkable effect an appropriate quotation from scott's guy mannering he was warning his listeners that if they helped the enemies of the Irish Church to pull it down, they would be preparing the way for the destruction of the English Church as well. He turned to that striking passage in Guy Mannering, where Meg Merrilies confronts the Laird of Ellangowan about the eviction of the gypsies, and warns him that, This day have ye quenched seven smoking hearths. 
see if the fire in your ain parlour burn the blither for that ye have riven the thack off seven cotter houses look if your ain roof tree stand the faster nothing could be more apt as a political appeal or more effective in a rhetorical sense than this quotation but it did not illustrate the relations between the english and the irish church the real danger to the english church would have been a protracted and obstinate maintenance of the church of ireland it is not necessary here to enter upon any of the general arguments for or against the principle of a state church but it will be admitted by every one that the claim made on behalf of the church of england is that it is the church of the great majority of the english people and that it has a spiritual work to do which the majority of the nation admit to be its appropriate task to maintain the church of england on that ground is only to condemn the church of ireland the more strongly an englishman was inclined to support his own church the more anxious he ought to have been to repudiate the claim of the irish church to a similar position the state church in ireland was like a mildewed ear blasting its wholesome brother if the two institutions had to stand or fall together there could be but one end to the difficulty both must fall mr gladstone's first resolution came to a division about a month after the defeat of lord stanley's amendment it was carried by a majority somewhat larger than that which had rejected the amendment three hundred and thirty votes were given for the resolution two hundred and sixty-five against it the majority for the resolution was therefore sixty-five mr disraeli quietly observed that the government must take some decisive step in consequence of that vote and a few days afterwards it was announced that as soon as the necessary business could be got through parliament would be dissolved and an appeal made to the country on the last day of july the dissolution took place and the elections came on in november not for many years had there been so important a general election the keenest anxiety prevailed as to its results the new constituencies created by the reform bill were to give their votes for the first time the question at issue was not merely the existence of the irish state church it was a general struggle of advanced liberalism against toryism no one could doubt that mr gladstone if he came into power would enter on a policy of more decided liberalism than had ever been put into action since the days of the reform bill of lord grey and lord john russell the result of the elections was on the whole what might have been expected the liberals had a great majority but there were many curious and striking instances of the growing strength of conservatism in certain parts of the country lancashire once a very stronghold of liberalism retained only tories for its county divisions and even in most cases elected tories to represent its boroughs eight conservatives came in for the county of lancaster and among those whom their election displaced were no less eminent persons than mr gladstone and lord hartington mr gladstone was defeated in south-west lancashire but the result of the contest had been generally anticipated and therefore some of his supporters put him up for greenwich also and he was elected there he had been passing step by step from less popular to more popular constituencies from the university of oxford he had passed to the lancashire division and now 
from the lancashire constituency he went on to a place where the liberal portion of the electors were inclined for the most part to be not merely radical but democratic the contest in north lancashire was made more interesting than it would otherwise have been by the fact that it was not alone a struggle between opposing principles and parties but also one between two great rival houses lord hartington represented the great cavendish family mr frederick stanley was the younger son of lord darby lord hartington was defeated by a large majority and was left out of parliament for a few months he was afterwards elected for the radnorboroughs mr mill was defeated at westminster his defeat was brought about by a combination of causes he had been elected in a moment of sudden enthusiasm and the enthusiasm had now had time to cool away he had given some offence in various quarters by a too great independence of action and of expression on many questions of deep interest he had shown that he was entirely out of harmony with the views of the vast majority of his constituents whatever their religious denomination might be he had done some things which people called eccentric and an english popular constituency does not love eccentricity his opponent mr w h smith was very popular in westminster and had been quietly canvassing it for years perhaps it may be hinted too that mr mill's manly resolve not to pay any part of his election expenses did not contribute to make him a favourite candidate with a certain proportion of the constituency he was known to be a generous and charitable man he gave largely out of his modest fortune toward any purpose which he thought deserving of support but he disapproved of the principle of calling on a candidate to pay for permission to perform very onerous public duties and he would not consent to recognize the principle by contributing anything toward the cost of his own candidature this was against him in the mind of many in every great constituency there is a certain proportion of voters who like the idea of a man's being liberal of his money in a contest even though they do not expect to have any share of it some of the westminster electors had probably grown tired of being represented by one who was called a philosopher some other prominent public men lost their seats mr roebuck was defeated in sheffield his defeat was partly due to the strong stand he had made against the trades unions but still more to the bitterness of the hostility he had shown to the northern states during the american civil war mr milner gibson and mr bernal osborne were also unseated the latter got into parliament again the former disappeared from public life he had done good service at one time as an ally of cobden and bright mr lowe was elected the first representative of the university of london on which it will be remembered the conservative reform bill had conferred a seat mr disraeli afterwards humorously claimed the credit of having enabled mr lowe to carry on his public career by providing for him the only constituency in england which would have accepted him as its representative one curious fact about the elections was that the extreme democratic candidates and those who were called the working men's candidates were in every instance rejected this was the first general election with household suffrage in boroughs and the lowered franchise in counties it might have been supposed that the votes of the working men of the people who live in those small houses 
would have decided many a contest in favour of the candidates representing their cause or their class but the candidates who appealed especially to working men failed in every instance to secure election mr ernest jones mr beales mr mason jones mr odger mr bradley tried and failed either our new masters were not so powerful as they were expected to prove or they were very much like our old masters in their taste for representation the new parliament was to all appearance less marked in its liberalism than that which had gone before it but so far as mere numbers went the liberal party was much stronger than it had been in the new house of commons it could count upon a majority of about a hundred and twenty whereas in the late parliament it had but sixty mr gladstone it was clear would now have everything in his own hands and the country might look for a career of energetic reform while the debates on mr gladstone's resolutions were still going on there came to england the news that lord brougham was dead he had died at cannes in his ninetieth year his death was a quiet passing away from a world that had well-nigh forgotten him seldom has a political career been so strangely cut short as that of lord brougham from the time when the whig administration was formed without him he seemed to have no particular business in public life he never had from that hour the slightest influence on any political party or any political movement his restless figure was seen moving about the house of lords like that of a man who felt himself out of place there and was therefore out of humour with himself and his company he often took part in debate and for many years he continued to show all the fire and energy of his earlier days but of late he had almost entirely dropped out of politics happily for him the social science association was formed and he acted for a long time as its principal guide philosopher and friend he made speeches at its meetings presided at many of its banquets and sometimes showed that he could still command the resources of a mass of eloquence his social science had a curious air of unreality about it it seemed as if it had been hastily put together out of that penny cyclopedia in which at one time he had so much concern the men of the younger generation looked at him with interest and wonder they found it hard to realize the fact that only a few years before he was one of the most conspicuous and energetic figures in political agitation now he seemed oddly like some dethroned king who occupies his leisure in botanical studies some once famous commander long out of harness who amuses himself with learning the flute there were some who forgot broom the great reformer altogether and only thought of broom the patron and orator of the social science association he passed his time between cannes which he may be said to have discovered and london at one time he had had the idea of actually becoming a citizen of france being of opinion that it would set a good example for the brotherhood of peoples if he were to show how a man could be a french and an english citizen at the same time he had outlived nearly all his early friends and foes melbourne gray durham campbell lyndhurst had passed away the death of lyndhurst had been a great grief to him it is said that in his failing later years he often directed his coachman to drive him to lord lyndhurst's house as if his old friend and gossip were still among the living at last 
Broom began to give unmistakable signs of vanishing intelligence. His appearances in public were mournful exhibitions. He sometimes sat at a dinner party and talked loudly to himself of something which had no concern with the time, the place, or the company. His death created but a mere momentary thrill of emotion in England. He had made bitter enemies and cherished strong hatreds in his active years, and like all men who have strong hatreds, he had warm affections too. But the close friends and the bitter enemies were gone alike, had passed like snow long, long ago with the time of the Barmecides, and the agitation about the Irish church was scarcely interrupted for a moment by the news of his death. Broom's writings are not read now. No one turns to his speeches, those speeches that once set England aflame. His philosophy, his learning, his science, his Greek, were all so curiously superficial, that it is no wonder if enemies sometimes declared them to be mere sham. As the memoirs of his contemporaries begin to be published, we receive more and more evidence of the prodigious vanity which made Broom believe that no one could do anything so well in any department as he could do everything in every department. The Edinburgh Review he appears to have regarded as a means by which he was to display the genius and acquirements, and others were to puff the speeches of Henry Broom. A strange sight was seen one day at a meeting of the Social Science Association when Lord Broom, then on the eve of his complete intellectual decline, introduced to the company a man so old that he seemed to belong to an elder world altogether, a man with a wasted, wrinkled, wizard-like face, who wore a black silk skull-cap and a gabardine. This was Robert Owen, and it was Owen's last appearance in public. He died a few days after in his ninetieth year. Broom at that time was ten years younger, and he introduced Owen with all the respectful and almost filial carefulness which sturdy youth might show to sinking age. For the moment, it would almost seem as if the self-conceit which made Broom believe himself a great critic and a great Greek scholar had made him also believe that for him time was nothing and that he was still a young man. End of section 24